Thank you for checking out the latest edition of the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. This episode features interviews with three different people in the entertainment world who I've been a big fan of for a long time, and those people are Judas Priest singer Rob Halford, director, actor, writer, etc. David Arquette, and Chris DeMakes from the band Less Than Jake. First up is my interview with Rob Halford, the legendary singer of the band Judas Priest. If you're a longtime listener of the Paltrowcast, you may recall that Rob was on an episode about a year and a half ago, but this is a new interview that I did with Rob. He was promoting his then-upcoming book called Confess the Autobiography, and I had the pleasure of talking with him about 10 or so minutes during a press junket. We spoke a bit about the book, and it's really a great book. It tells a lot about Rob Halford that you probably didn't know because as the book kind of alludes to with the title, he had to hide a lot of who he really is, especially at the peak of his fame. So he goes into that a little bit in the interview. We also talk about some fun stuff. He lives in Arizona where he's been for a couple of decades now. I think you're going to like this one. Rob, good evening. How's it going there today? Hello, Darren. Everything's great, my friend. Yes. Whereabouts are you? What, what location are you off? Are, are you in the U.S.? Yes, Long Island, New York, which you have played many, oh, many times. Long Island, yes. Love that part of America. It's nice to talk with you. We've only got about 15 minutes, so shall we dive in? We shall dive in. So I had the pleasure of reading your book over the last few days. And the prologue of it, which, pardon my English, screaming my tits off forever, is wonderful. <laughs> and you are actually talking about the year 2020 in there. Was it the plan all along to be covering 2020, or was that added later on? You know, uh, Ian and I, Ian Dickens, we've uh, just been amazing to make this book happen with. We, we just kept an open calendar on on, um, on everything right up until the world ended, you know, as we went into 2022. But, um, yeah, we, uh, you know, uh, the, the great thing about this book what was the, the openness uh, and the honesty and just the, just the constant search for covering as much um, time as we, as we could remember, as I can remember, which it turned out to be quite, quite decent. Um, but also, you know, looking, looking ahead and looking ahead, it's sort of part of who I am. Darren, you know, I've always been a very optimistic person, which I think I've also mentioned in the book. Right, and it comes across very quickly in the book that you are very normal. You talk about that in the prologue, where you mentioned liking to watch Netflix and play the penny slots and go on long walks and all that. (laughs) Did you become normal as you got older, or were you actually this normal in your early 20s? I think I've always been that way. I think I've always been that way. And again, I reference who I am uh, as to where I'm from. You know, Walsall in the West Midlands is a very down-to-earth, blue-collar part of the UK. And um, you, 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 don't get a, you don't get an opportunity to put yourself on a pedestal. Not that I, not that I ever wanted to anyway. But, um, you know, all of, all of the glamour, the, 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 the so-called rock and roll glamour, uh, for, which for some exists, uh, and, and in some areas of music definitely exists. Uh, it was never never an attraction for me, Darren. It was all about um, um, the guts of my life, which has been heavy metal music. It cracks me up how many times you reference Spinal Tap in the book when you refer to <laughs> yeah. Nostradamus as Jazz Odyssey, that kind of equivalent from the Priest catalog. <laughs> I've read stories about how Aerosmith, when they saw Spinal Tap in the movie theater, they thought it was a real movie. They were so high, and they were actually pissed off. And Motorhead <laughs> helped inspire the movie. But did you find it funny when you originally saw it in the 80s? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that, that, that little cool story about Glenn and I going to see the movie while we were on tour. We had a dive in San Diego, and we snuck into a matinee and saw it, and we roared. We thought this is what is it? Art imitates life. Life imitates art. It was a it was a purest example of that. And in in that respect, as we've always said within within Priest, um, 
Uh, we, we take our music deadly seriously, but we have a lot of fun doing it. And the references in Spine of that definitely have some priest elements um, from the beginning to the end of that flick. Well, you were part of, with members of Spinal Tap, one of my favorite singles of all time, which is the Stars song that you did with Hearing Aid. And in my opinion, you have the best uh, verse on that song. But when you were in the room with the Spinal Tap guys, was it good vibes of the fact that they were there, or did everyone kind of think that they were making fun of them? You know, as, as I can recall, as best as I, as I can recall, everyone that did that wonderful record with Ronnie had seen the movie. So we were all, uh, I think we were all doing the shock and awe when, when some of the Spinal Tap guys came into the movie. We are not worthy, you know. And, um, but it, it really is genius from an acting point of view. The, the, uh, the performances that, that the guys gave were, were totally spot on. And they stayed in character. They stayed in character in the, in the studio while I was there. And they never dropped out of character once, which made it even more funny. And uh, it was just another brilliant memory for that great event that one created. Yeah, your history really is full of these amazing stories and memories and connections that you made. One of them, which I don't recall reading about in the book, was you singing back up on the Queens of the Stone Age album. Was that a memorable thing or is that you just did one or two takes and you got out of the room? That was just a very spontaneous bit of rock and roll from, yeah. I'm pretty sure I was in um, Sound City in Los Angeles making the Calford record. And Josh came by and just said hi and, you know, how much kind of priest he was and so on and so forth. And I knew of Queen of the Stone Age already being a fan of their music. So it was just a quick, hey, you know, we, we, we're, we're doing this track and would you, would you consider coming here and laying some vocals down? And I think I was in and out in 15 minutes, you know. But that's the kind of friendship that a lot of musicians have. Um, we're all... Essentially, we're all living the same life. No matter what kind of music you do, you, you, there are certain parts of being a musician that replicate in your life, no matter who or where you're from. And um, and there's this great support system, you know. So it was, uh, yeah, it was a very spontaneous bit of rock and roll. And there's a great story in the book, without giving too much away, about you meeting the Queen and striking up a friendship with Scylla. Did you see her again after that incident? I didn't, know. I sent her some flowers. I sent her a huge bouquet of flowers a couple of days later. And I believe I also sent her, I just didn't go into the book because, it's, you know, the, the great thing about Ian is that we'll talk and talk and talk and then something will come along later, like this you, you're asking me, Darren, it, 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 it could trigger something. I sent her a song, and I'm trying to remember now what song it was. I'm, I'm pretty certain it might have been a priest ballad um, that I that I that I included in the notes and said, Scylla, here's a CD of a, a song. Um, we would love to hear you your rendition on it. But we didn't hear back. Um, but shortly after that, of course, um, she had a tragic accident. So... Uh, she was an icon and still is a legend, the national treasure from, from the UK. Her voice was, was unmatched and it had so much style and flair and, and distinctive um, qualities about it. She was, uh, she was a one of a kind, Priscilla. Yeah, your book is just full of great stories of you bumping into fellow geniuses like Jimmy Page and her, Johnny Depp, Lady Gaga, etc. And the common theme of most of these run-ins is that people talk about their appreciation and admiration of you and your career. And of course, if you aren't a metalhead, if you aren't somebody that likes hard rock, you might stupidly peg Judas Priest as being an 80s band, not realizing that the roots of the band go back to the 60s and the band is still doing great these days. I'm curious when you started to realize that you were an influential artist. You know, um, th these kinds of... Uh, notifications <laughs> in the, uh, the um, Apple WhatsApp notification things, they start to pop up out of the blue and references are made towards you and about you that you, you're generally not prepared for, you know. And the, 
when when they do happen, it, it's it's a it's a lovely feeling really because you're not searching for that, you're not expecting it. I think more than anything, it's an affirmation of what you've made with your music in a band like Priest for 50 years this year. Um, so it's just a very generous um, kind of presentation to you. It makes you feel good, you know. And, um, and uh, yeah, you know, when you're on The Simpsons, I suppose that means you're, you're embedded in, in American culture, just talking about America for, for a moment. But worldwide, priests have been flying the flag for British heavy metal for four fifty years. No matter where we go, there's a connection with abandoned music in the world. Right. Well, the last time I interviewed you, you talked about how you still thought that one day you might do a blues album. Is that something you're still thinking about? You know it is, and I'll give you an exclusive. Um, it's already begun. Um, I'm going to... Um, I'm going to work on this blues. I'm working on this blues album again with my with my brother and my nephew and uh, friends that uh, worked with me together on the on the uh, celestial album. It's such a great time, and they're so talented. And that blues feeling has never left me. It's just part of rock and roll. So it, it's begun. We're, we're slowly being, putting bits and pieces together. There's no timeline on it. But we, we're kicking the tires and. Um, I've already got snippets of um, of ideas here in my iPhone, and they sound great. Wow, you might be the only person to do a blues album and work with Stock, Aikman, and, and Waterman, so that might be a, a first there. You know, keeping an open mind in music is really important. As we've said many times in Priest, we're well aware of what goes on around us in metal and that outside of metal. And there are so many opportunities for um, inspiration um, that it's, it's foolish to put the blinkers on and just stay focused in, in one dimension. At least it is for priests. That's why, as a band, we've always been so diverse with, uh, with our music, as I said to you before. Down one minute we can be the painkiller and, and the next minute we can be the turbo lover. So... But that, uh, that moment that we had with Stock Aiken and Waterman, it came out of that open-mindedness that we have. Three more quick questions, and then you're a free man. And the first one is, you talk about early in the book about the experience of you and the rest of the Halford family going to a professional wrestling live event and how your mom kind of caused <laughs> yes. the scene. Yes. Was there yes. ever for yes. you a second live professional wrestling event? No, but I tell you what's really funny. You know, there's an app going on around now uh, called Reface App. Um, so, somebody sent me one of Richie Falconer going into the ring on the face of uh, John Senner, I think it was. So I'm, I'm expecting, I'm expecting. Actually, uh, somebody sent me as Wonder Woman today, which is spot on. I don't know what, if you know what I'm talking about, uh, Darren. It's called Reface, Reface App, where you can put your face on anybody. Um, so there was that humorous thing that just happened with Richie. Uh, as far as wrestling goes, of course, I, I have a good friend, um, um, older mine, Fozzie from the Fozzie Band, helped me out. Helped Chris me out. Jericho, yeah. Chris, yes, known Chris for years, wonderful guy, and that's a great, it's a great entertainment and sport uh, wrestling. Um, I've always fancied myself as the guy that's you know that, that's calling out the the opponents. Well, what was that? There used to be a really famous guy that was in the in, in the corner of, of one of the big stars that would always always yelling at the other wrestlers and throwing things at them and that kind of stuff. I, I've always kind of fancied myself as being one of those guys who's my ball whip, you know, <laughs> whipping the whipping the uh, the opponents. So who knows? There's plenty of time left for that. Next up is my interview with David Arquette. At the top of the episode, I think I called him a director, writer, actor, producer, etc. He has many titles because he's always been steadily working. And when we spoke, he was promoting a new movie called Spree, which is kind of an action thriller, even though it has a lot of comics in it. But we also spoke about a new documentary that he's the star of called You Can't Kill David Arquette. Not everybody realizes that David Arquette was a world champion within the field of professional wrestling in the late 1990s. Kind of a controversial thing to wrestling fans who are purists. And this documentary focuses on him making peace with all that 
and actually getting back into wrestling. It's unbelievable the shape that he got into. It's unbelievable the sacrifices that he was making to do all of that. If I were famous like David Arquette and all that, I don't think I'd have it in me to want to put work and family on hold to delve into the things that he did within this documentary. But he's a special guy, and it was a really a pleasure to speak with him. Got him to open up a little bit about Andy Kaufman within this chat. I think you're going to like this one as well. David, hey, how's Aaron. it going there today? It's going well, thank you. How are you doing? Excellent. Thank you very much. And I first want to ask you about Spree. When was it actually made? Because sometimes you hear that movies were made three years ago, and then other times that things were in post-production, you know, a month before it actually came out. Yeah, um, well, we were at Sundance uh, last winter. Um, it got, so I, I think it was around last summer we, we shot this. And it's very impressive how many people in the film are from comedic backgrounds, yourself included. Do you know if they intentionally cast comedians for this kind of movie? I knew that Eugene uh, wanted to have a comedic element. All of his previous films were really funny. And, uh, and I think he looks at the world in a very comedic way. It was interesting, the kind of humor... <clears throat> We explored in it. There's a lot of, I, I said in my initial meeting with him, he was talking about cringe videos. I was like, what are those? And he said, well, it's somebody who's incredibly cringy and they're doing stuff that just makes you uncomfortable. I was like, that's so funny because I feel like my life's been a bit of a cringe factory. And he's like, well, turn that up when we're shooting our stuff because it's a, it's part of the film. It's this, sort of awkward aspect of the human condition and then amplified by this social media and desire to be liked just adds to this whole uh, uh, tapestry. Well, growing up as a fan of Howard Stern and WCW, you always kind of hit on all the cylinders as to what I was interested in and, and all that. And you also have You Cannot Kill David Arquette coming out soon. And our mutual friend Diamond Dallas Page of, is, of course, instrumental in all that. Did you know outright that you were going to yeah. be doing a documentary? The documentary idea had floated around for a while. I always uh, I hated being the but of all the jokes, they never let me do anything in the ring when I was uh, wrestling because uh, they thought I was going to get hurt or I didn't know what I was doing. So uh, getting an opportunity to properly train to learn how to wrestle was really great. Peter Avalon, a professional wrestler, really helped me uh, train and um and yeah, and doing DDPY really helped me start losing weight, prepare to get in the ring, not hurt myself. He's got a, a, so many great, he's just a mentor of mine. He's been really supportive. I can't uh, praise Diamond Dallas Page enough. Right. I personally think that your wrestling history, even before the documentary, holds up because I look at it all from the Andy Kaufman perspective, where it was a celebrity coming in with a different perspective to the whole thing. Was Andy Kaufman an influence with your run with WCW at all? I always loved Andy Kaufman and what he did and how much he loved wrestling. I think that's what sort of was similar about us. I thought more people would would get that angle of it a little more and have fun with it. But, um, but they didn't, I mean, there's a couple of wink and nods in the wrestling documentary to Andy Kaufman. I have, uh, Gary, the King Lawler, uh, pile drive me after I said, I'm from Hollywood or I'll sue you. <laughs> so yeah, it was really fun to sort of go down that road become a heel for a second until a, a pile driver set me straight on how to, how to behave. But once I did that, I turned heel and I said all this stuff and then Jerry comes out and he gives me a pile driver. And then as I'm leaving the ring, 
I was saying to him, you never believed in me. I was yelling at the audience. And then I'm walking off the, the out of the ring and I get down and I'm walking to the go backstage and there's a little kid and he's crying and he's probably eight, eight years old. He's like, I believed in you. I believed in you. <laughs> I had a moment where I couldn't, I couldn't like look at him and I was like, I couldn't say I'm sorry because I'm still in my heel place and I, I'm not enough of a heel that I'd say, sorry, kid, you know, there's no Santa Claus either, but, uh, it was a funny moment. I mean, there's really so many interesting exchanges with wrestling fans when you get out there and, and really become a part of it. I can only imagine. And it's also amazing to me that right now you're promoting spree in the documentary, and people who look at your IMDb page will know that Scream 5 is sort of in pre-production. So you're really juggling a mix of studios, indies, reality, and all that. Is that invigorating for you, or is that challenging to know that it's spree at one moment, the documentary at the next? Well, as a like actor in this business for 30 years you learn pretty quickly if you don't have other projects going on you're gonna go pretty crazy because there's a lot of sitting around there's a lot of working on projects that end up going nowhere so it's it's <clears throat> it's you know we also do projects to entertain people we want we want to make uh, films that connect with an audience that people find and want to see and, and develop the buzz. So when you do get projects like this that are getting a really great response, that are picked up by great film festivals and are represented by really great companies, you really you want to support them. You want to get the word out. You want people to enjoy them because that's really ultimately what we're always trying to do. I'm, I'm, I'm seldom trying to like boost my ego or do something that, you know, makes me look tough or, uh, you know, I always try to approach it from script, the characters, my role within the story. Uh, and then how can we make the best film possible? And as you mentioned before, DDPY absolutely helped your recovery and get you into shape and all that. Is that still something that you do a couple times a week? I do do it upon occasion. Uh, I'm not sure if it's weekly, but uh, definitely some of the um, stretching techniques for sure. Cool. Now, so since some of this article is going up on the Jewish Journal, uh, do you mind a quick Jewish yeah, question yeah. or two? Yeah, of course. Were you bar mitzvahed? That part I couldn't find out on the internet. Yeah, I was bar mitzvahed at the Wailing Wall when I was 40 years old. Wow, 40 years old. When you do a service like that do they give you the uh english character hebrew or do you just have to repeat what you hear anything like that i re repeated what i heard i mean it's i hope it's not bad to say but getting a bar mitzvah at the wailing wall is a lot like getting married uh in las vegas they make it very easy for you uh you go through all the steps but it's a lot quicker of a process you um you meet with the rabbi a few times. Uh, he he uh, reads the Torah and you uh, repeat after him. And you celebrate. I mean, the fact that it's at the Wailing Wall alone is really remarkable. And, uh, and I, I just love visiting Israel. Well, two quick questions and then you're free. And the first one is, Dwayne Johnson, a fellow thespian of yours, likes to say that any time that somebody's been a champion in wrestling, that he calls them champ whenever he encounters them. Does anyone call you champ in your everyday existence? You know, a lot of wrestling fans actually do call me champ, which is nice. But I call a lot of people champ. My personal opinion is that we're all the champion of our own world. That's one thing that always upset me. Like, what, I'm not good enough to be a champion? I think everyone's, it's like Muhammad Ali said, I am the greatest. And I think he was speaking to all of us, for all of us to say, I am the greatest. 
because you're the greatest in your world and I'm the greatest in mine. And that's sort of my philosophy in life. It helps me to, it, uh, believe it or not, it helps me to humble myself and understand that, you know, I might be the most important person in my world, but you're the most important person in yours. So it, it gives you an ability to respect the other person and uh, honor them and without sort of seeing yourself as better than anyone else. Hearing you say that means you've been spending a lot of time with DDP. <laughs> yeah, exactly. DDP's always been such a huge inspiration. He's such a positive mentor. and Just the way he conducts himself, the way he you know, feeds his body, he's like one of the healthiest people I've ever met. Absolutely. So in closing, David, besides seeing your new movies, any last words for the kids? Oh, don't be hard on yourself. Love yourself. That's what my main, uh, my main takeaway from the wrestling documentary was. I, I, after the death match, my wife was really upset with me. She's like, I feel like you just want to die. And I was like, well, I don't want to die. But it did, did make me look at how I'd been so uh, self-destructive and abusive to myself and that took a lot of work with therapists and with uh, a lot of self-help books a lot of uh, just personal sort of growth to come to the understanding of what's important in life you know where to spend your energy and time how to be an honest caring person without being uh, beating myself up all the time Wow. Okay. Well, really looking forward to seeing the full-length documentary. Thank you so much for your time, and keep up the great work you're doing. I appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Last, but definitely not least, is my interview with Chris DeMakes of the band Less Than Jake, one of my favorite interviews that I've done this year, over the past few years in general. He's such a great guy, and there's so much more to him than Less Than Jake, for example, Earlier this year, Chris started up a podcast called Chris Demakes a Podcast. Yes, that is a pun. He is a funny guy. You would know that if you listen to Less Than Jake, of course. But this podcast isn't about him. It's about great songwriters writing great songs, how they came up with those songs, the inspiration, the process, etc. The first episode that I heard that really grabbed me was one he did with Rick Nielsen from Cheap Trick, who I've had on this podcast. He got Rick to talk about the song Surrender by Cheap Trick. Still a huge song to this day. And I never knew so much of the stuff that Rick said during the interview about what the song meant and the process and the level of fame of Cheap Trick at the time. He also has great episodes with Matt Skiba, who is from the Alkaline Trio, but has been in Blink-182 for the past couple of years. There's an upcoming episode, well... It'll be out by the time this episode is out with Laura Jane Grace. Chris, again, was such a pleasure to speak with. And this represents, I think, the first 25 minutes or so of our conversation. The next 25 minutes or so are on my other podcast, the DLR cast, because I got Chris to talk about Van Halen and David Lee Roth and his hard rock influences. Not everybody realizes that People from the punk or ska genres don't just listen to punk and ska. The influence came from elsewhere. So we spoke about that in depth, and Chris might know more about David Lee Roth than I do. Video of this chat, or at least a lot of this chat, is also on YouTube if you want to see some of the visual stuff that he was saying or that I was referring to. I could talk to that guy for another two or three hours, so we'll see again if that happens in the near future. Thanks for listening. Hey, Chris, you can hear me okay? I can. How you doing? Thumbs up. Right on time, man. I mean, not that I expect anything less from you. If, if there's one thing I am is punctual. My grandfather always said, if you're on time, you're late. If you're early, you're on time. Putting the punk in punctual. Uh, <laughs> good day so far, otherwise? Great day. Cool. I am so glad we connected because... I knew about you and your music, of course, you know, Scott Kid from Long Island. You, you know who Chris and Less Than Jake are. But then when I found out about your podcast, I have to give you a huge compliment. Your interview with Rick Nielsen is 20 times better than either of my attempts at interviewing him. How did you do that so well? 
You know, he, uh, I, I've met him a couple times and I, I kind of knew, uh, kind of knew what I was getting into. He's, he's uh, very sarcastic and so am I, but <laughs> I try to, I try to keep my, my show a little different than a lot of people have commented, you know, you seem so different than, than you are on stage. It's like, well, yeah, you know, I, I didn't, I didn't want to blur the lines with this. I made it, I made this in stark contrast to, to my stage persona because I didn't want to, you know, the podcast to be about, you know, dick jokes and stupid shit that we do live, you know, like, um, cause I could be 85 years old and that stuff's always going to be funny to me, you know, but this was, you know, I was thinking ahead of, of wanting to take, take the show, um, you know, to a place where families could, you know, drive to, uh, baseball games on Saturday and listen to it in the car. And, you know, it, it could be a, a, I don't want to say a family thing, but I just wanted it to be a little above boards. So, yeah. Uh, you went in super prepared because the first time I interviewed Rick, it was for Guitar World. I put it up on the website and I'd say something along the lines of, so I heard a rumor that you're making a Christmas album. Is that true? And you go, not true. And you go, well, I, because we already made it. And I'm like, oh, I should have waited for the pause. You knew to wait for the pause. Kind of. Yeah. You know, um, I don't know. It was he. Got, he kind of did his thing, but uh, I also have to hand, hand it to my producer, Chris Fafalios. Chris does a good job at editing certain things out. So <laughs> we do. Oh, okay. We do. We do some cleanups. Not to say we did much. You know, we, we don't do anything crazy, but a lot of the ahs and the stops, and we try to make the show flow a little bit. You know, because you never know. Some some people aren't cut out for doing this. You know. Yeah, I love the roster the rundown of people you've had on the show already most people when they start a podcast they have to call in a couple favors because well hey if you pitch it to a publicist they'll go okay cool how many listeners do you have oh nobody who's been on the show before nobody so it's not out yet oh yeah we'll get back to you in your case when you're getting you know not only a bandmate but members of the alkaline trio <laughs> and all that kind of stuff you had a good leg up but you seem like a real natural for talking songcraft with people. Well, you know, I've been in the business for 30 years and, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, I went to school for telecommunications and I always, <clears throat> to college, I always thought that I was going to go into radio and I've certainly done enough interviews over the years. Um, and I've done enough shitty interviews over the years. So <laughs> That's really it. It's not the the good ones you never remember. You just remember the ones that are like, oh god, where'd your yeah. band name come from? Oh, dude, could do you, you ever Who heard of influences, Chris? Yeah, well, you know, and for and for me, it's it's like there was two things with the podcast that I didn't want to do. I didn't want it to be an interview. I don't care about your band politics. I don't care about your third drummer that sued you. I, I don't care about any of that shit because it doesn't matter to me, and and it doesn't interest me. What interests me is the song that either the artist, the guest, or, or myself chooses, which I did one yesterday. I was allowed to choose the song, which was great. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll uh, 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 suggest something, but ultimately I'll leave it up to the guest. And, uh, you know, I, I want to know everything about the song from the, from the beginning idea to everything. And, uh, you know, the, the listeners find that uh, fascinating as well. But I didn't want it to be an interview, and I didn't want it to be, you know, laborious people getting out there going oh god here we go again because it's just not you know it's not fun it's going to keep coming back to cheap trick unfortunately by accident here but i've never heard him explain surrender before i was super shocked that he would choose surrender and open up about surrender had you pitched a song to him or he well no it's it's funny so i i spoke with his manager and I said to the manager, I said, hey, you know, Rick knows who we are because he knew that Less Than Jake had covered Surrender. And uh, we had played with Cheap Trick a couple of years ago. And, yeah. um, and after that, I went and took my father to go see, uh, to see Cheap Trick and we hung out backstage. And, and uh, so Rick's familiar with myself and the band. And uh, I just talked to, through their manager, Kevin, I said, hey, you know, ask Rick what song he'd like to do. I said, you know, just food for thought, you know, Lesson J covered Surrender. And I, I would really love to dissect that song. And he wrote me back like that day. I was just like, Surrender it is. I was like, that's awesome. Because I knew that my listeners would really, really want to hear about that as well. I didn't realize that that song 
meant anything. I have to say, you know, like you, I've heard it thousands of times. And every now and then there's an amazing songwriter, somebody like Rick Ocasek, who they, they'll ask him about songs and goes, ah, I just made it up. It's, it's all from the mm -hmm. perspective of other people. And I find that a lot of my favorite songwriters, they just made it up. It has nothing to do with what they went through. I had no idea that Surrender was in any way a personal song. Yeah, I mean, I didn't either. Uh, there's times when what you just said, I'm, I'm shocked that someone will say, yeah, I just wrote this one morning. It's nonsense. Like, what? Yeah. Because it touched people around the globe in a certain way, and it, and it carved up all these emotions, stirred up all these emotions. Whereas other people are like, you know, oh, yeah, I, I, this was about this specific thing, and, you know, this is what it's about. And at the same time, other people didn't get that from the song. It, they felt it was about them or their divorce or their dad dying or something in their life happening. So that's why music's great because it's so subjective. And that's why, uh, you know, starting the podcast, um, going on into my fifth month, almost six months now. And mm -hmm. when I had first started doing it, um, so my manager, Chris Fafalios, who's also the producer of the show, mm -hmm. Chris um, had... We've been we've been working together, and he said, you know, there's something I really want you to do. Consider, I, I really think you should do a podcast. And people had said that to me for probably the past decade, and I was like, nah. He's like, well, why? I said, everyone does a podcast. It's just yeah. you know, every Tom, Dick, and Harry. You got you got a bedroom, you got a microphone. You know, you could do a, do a podcast, right? And and he said, yeah, but they're not you. And uh, kind of chewed on that for a little bit, and I kind of knew what he meant. He meant what you said a moment ago. Is I, I have such a great springboard to jump off of. I know so many people. I'm not going to have to try to get my foot in the door. I'm going to have an initial thing. Um, and he also said, it's just going to be great. It's going to be great for other projects. He says, you know, I know you're a natural at this. And he said, I really think people are going to love it. And uh, I went to sleep that night. And the very next morning I got up, I was just got done making breakfast for my kids and I'm just sitting there and, and I start checking emails and then I, I stopped checking emails and I went direct to my text and I texted like 20 guys, just boom. Yeah. I'm starting a, I'm starting a podcast. I don't even know the name of the show yet. I'm starting a podcast. Will you be on it? And I got the first week we did, we taped 12 episodes in one week. You, you did all of that in one week. Okay. Yeah. 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 I went, for, I went for it because I knew that, that I'm, I'm kind of an all or nothing guy. I wanted to yeah. go for it. I wanted to jump in. And uh, I, I, in the back of my mind, I was like, if no one likes it and if I'm not more, more than any, if, if no one likes it, if I am not getting something out of this and I don't enjoy it, then I got, I got a couple months of episodes. It's fun. And I can just say, you know, heck with it. And um, here we are. It's amazing. And I don't use the word amazing much. I, I make fun of people who use the word amazing because they're going to say, oh, these pancakes are amazing. Like, no, no, they're not. They're pancakes. This, this uh, chair is amazing. Everything is amazing. But I'm going to say it's amazing to me that the podcast is not your only creative outlet. Less Than Jake is not your only creative outlet beyond that. The custom songs that you're doing, that demo reel of custom songs cracked me up because... <laughs> You're able to change genres mid-sentence. So I hear somebody who's not only putting great work out there, but is actually getting everything done and in a prolific way. Have you always been this motivated and prolific, or did it just come in the last couple of years? No, I, I've, I've always been this way, but with everything, with schoolwork, I always had my projects turned in ahead of time. I, I can't have something sitting in my head. I have to purge it. That's just the way my brain works. Sure. Um, but the band was always um, enough for me, you know, and we toured so much, you know, a couple of the other guys, our old drummer uh, had a record label, uh, has a record label and, and uh, he started a toy company and, and uh, you know, Roger has a side, side project, side band called Rehasher and Buddy has a side band and everyone's kind of had their own things over the years. And, uh, you know, I would get off the road after two and for three months and just be like, all right, I'm done touring. We're not leaving again for three weeks. And it was kind of like, you know, call up my buddies and go out and have some, uh, have some dinner and some drinks. And, and uh, I, I would go into relax mode because I got every bit of creativity out of me with Less mm -hmm. Than Jake. And I still do um, for the most part. Um, 
but you know, I have, I have children now and, uh, my son's almost four. My daughter's, uh, going to be three next year. She's, uh, so I have, you know, have the, have the kids and I, I came home last year and we had, uh, we had finished doing a new lesson Jake record. And, um, I don't know. I, I just had one of those, it wasn't a midlife crisis. It was just, a. it was a, I felt like the first half of my life was over, you know, that I was starting the second half of my life because mm-hmm. I am, I am middle age and um, it wasn't in a bad thing. It was just a, um, who am I outside of Chris from less than Jake? Cause I was never Chris to mix, you know, that was the only thing I don't have any regrets. Uh, regrets are not, are not good. Cause they do, they do nobody any good. Right. But if, if there is one thing that I wish that I would have changed was we were too punk for school back in the nineties and, and, and something stuck with us throughout our career is I was Christian less than Jake. We never put our last names in records. In fact, in the nineties, when we do interviews pre-internet, it was always, I was like Chris Van Halen, Chris Lee Roth. I was like, you know, you know, Chris, whoever. Everyone did that. Bowling for soup. They were, that was Jarrett Von Eric. Well, you know, it, it was, yeah, it was kind of the thing to do, but no, nobody knows who I am. Yeah. And I don't, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's like nobody knew. And in, in fact, I, I would put out, um, I was the last one at the table to do social media stuff with the band. I have had a Facebook page forever, personal one, but the guys in the band were finally like, dude, you need a Twitter, you need Instagram. I'm like, ah, and I was showing my age. I was like, I don't want to deal with that. Cause I've talked to a lot of guys that are up my age, you know, around my age. are like, I don't do that social media shit. I don't want to deal with it. And I started to realize the importance of it. And I put this page out there and, um, you know, overnight I had like a couple thousand followers, but then it went, you know, and those couple thousand are the people, the fans that are really in tune and know who mm-hmm. I am from the band, but nobody knew who Krista makes was. So, um, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing or like a pity party. It's just, Pros I was, cons, you know, <laughs> I, what's that? Pros and cons to, well, a- uh, a- absolutely. No, I'm not, yeah. I'm not painting in a bad light. I'm, I'm going somewhere with this. I was being long winded, but, um, Last fall, I was thinking, who am I? Who am I outside of this band? You know, yeah. what what else do I do do that I love? And I was I was kind of banging my head against the wall for like a month or two. I was just thinking, like, what else do I like that I want to do? Well, I you know I I enjoy exercising and I enjoy reading rock biographies. I enjoy time with my family. Okay, yeah, but like job wise, what else do you like? And I just I don't know. I just had this epiphany of you're a musician everything's right in front of you yeah you know it's right there just do something outside of the band and and that was it you know and and once it started um you know you use the word prolific i just dove in the last year and and that's why it's you know, you're not the first person to say it. it's like whoa what the heck happened to you and yeah. you know you go from a band that you know new album every two years and out of nowhere an ep uh, every six months out of nowhere, <laughs> that kind of thing. And that's your output with you co-wrote 15 songs and that's it to now this guy, Chris <laughs> did a, did you say 11 podcasts in the first week? Uh, I think, yeah, I think we did about a dozen the first week. It was, uh, yeah. it was like three months of content. Cause I, I do the podcast once a week. Um, and, and you got to think about how much more personality there is in a podcast than there is a song. The greatest song of all time still does not say very much about who the person is. Like, what is um, what does Mick Mars's t- speaking voice sound like? You know, not many people know. It's it's kind of <laughs> tough to think about that. That some of our favorite people in the world. What does Bonnie Carlos talk like? I I don't I don't know. I, I think I could pick out Robin Zander's speaking voice, but then you listen to two podcast episodes, even if it's just a 20, 30 minute thing. And you're, you're like, okay, well, I know where the person lives and what they sound like and what makes them tick and what their stutters are and all that. So you just put out like 10 years of musical equivalent <laughs> in like three months. That's how I look at it. Well, I appreciate it. Yeah. And I, I, never really thought about it like that. I just, um, you know, to answer your initial question, yeah, I've always been very motivated and I, but I was always satisfied with the band and, um, and I always kind of had this, I don't know, 
this, and I still do. I, I think our best records in front of us. I think our best shows in front of us. I think once you lose sight of that, then you have no more fight left in you, you know? And that was always enough for me to attain and, and strive for. And, um, you know, things just kind of, I don't know, like something clicked with me. I really don't know. I can't explain it. It was just, uh, you know, I'm not really a religious person, but it was some kind of divine thing that just kind of hit me one day. And I was like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm feeling unfulfilled. Like, and I, and I wasn't unfulfilled in, a, in an unhappy way. I have a beautiful family, band, fans all over the world. I wake up generally happy, you know, every day, most of the time. And, uh, but I, there was just something inside me that there, there's something more out there. And, and uh, just started getting into projects. Chris has been a tremendous help, my, my manager. He's, uh, him and I get along fantastic. He uh, plays bass in the uh, band Punchline. He used to be on Feel by Ramen. That's so, the same Chris? That's I the same Chris. That. Yeah, it's the same Chris. I yeah. saw them open up for Fall Out Boy before they were famous on Long Island. I didn't know that's the oh, same yeah. Chris I've been talking with. Wow. Oh, yeah, that's, that's the same Chris, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and, and Chris, he had done a, a cartoon uh, animation for, uh, we did a tour with Bowling for Soup last fall, and he did an, an animation little skit thing where Jarrett was calling Roger and I, and we're like, you know, we, we were acting like we weren't interested in doing the tour. It was this funny thing Chris put together. Yeah. And uh, I started doing my custom songs and I thought, you know, it'd be cool to do an animated video to advertise my songs. And I, I called Chris up and said, hey, would you be interested? And yeah, I would love to. So I uh, hired him to do this uh, video. And it was just, I mean, within a week, it was one thing after another of ideas. And we just, you know, it was kind of like... Uh, I even made the joke that it was like our honeymoon phase. I'm like, I feel like we're dating, you know, we're texting and, but it was just this excitement, you know, and he felt the same excitement and he wanted to, uh, wanted to work, you know, outside of, uh, outside of punchline, wanted to do something uh, and creative and, and him and I've just been, been busy and it's been great. Yeah. And another compliment, cause I, I just can't stop on the, the compliment end and you're going to have to take these compliments is the conversations that you're having with a lot of these people who our peers or friends are probably the same conversations that you would have had anyway had the recorder not been going on. So it's wonderful that you're documenting your life because otherwise the, the phone call would have happened or you would have had that over drinks and that was it. Hey, that was a good conversation. But now you, you preserved what you would be doing had you not been paid. Yeah. And well, and, and now I'm getting into other artists. So I've done a couple of people now that and, and I've gotten the best compliments. Uh, these two, it was the same compliment from two separate artists. They both said, um, we got done with the podcast. And I'm like, you know, saying the end things like, you know, thank you so much for being on the show, blah, blah, blah. You know, the closing, closing of the show. And they both said, man, that was really different. That was unlike anything I've ever done. And one of the guys has been in business over 30 years. And he's like, that was unlike anything I've ever done. That was, that was really enjoyable. Thank you. You know, I did one yesterday that was just um, the artist at the end was just like, well, first of all, when's, when's this going to air, what we're doing here? You tell me when you want it to air and it's going to air then. <laughs> well, if it airs after October 5th, which isn't very long from now, I can tell you who the artist was yesterday. Um, so is I can scrape, I can scrape, you can tell me and I'll scrape that from this, but odds are it's going to be after October 5th. Perfect. So, uh, yeah, after, if it's after October 5th, the, uh, I had Laura Jane Grace on yesterday from Against Me. Oh, wow, yeah. And, and Laura, who I've known forever, yeah. uh, we, just, we pretty much just laughed through the whole episode and just had fun. Like you said, it was like two friends backstage talking about a song. But Laura had never been asked the questions I was asking about the song and was just, uh, we did the song White, White People for Peace off their new wave record. And just completely floored, made mention at the end, like, man, this was just unlike anything I've ever done. And it's refreshing. And that has been one hard thing, especially uh, right now with bands not being able to tour, bands are in between projects. So I've been hitting up management companies and stuff and being like, hey, I want to get so-and-so artists. I'm like, yeah, they're not doing any, any interviews right now. It's like, okay, first of all, this <laughs> isn't an interview. The last fucking thing I want to do is interview anybody. Last thing, I never want to do another interview. I never want to be interviewed, okay? And this isn't an interview what we're doing. We're just talking. You know, this, yeah. is, this is, I'm not directing that at you, but the, the, the formal interview of like, okay, state your name. Oh, Christ, you don't know my name? Um, yeah, um, 
So yeah. how long how long's less than Jake been together? It's like, do, do you have one of these? Like, do you know how to use it? It's like it's almost insulting, and not from an ego. I'm not like you know, but it's like if you're a journalist, do your research. So sure, getting a, getting across the point to them that I don't want to do an interview. Number one, number two. With all due respect, I'll let you plug the shit out of your new album at the end of the podcast, but I don't care about the new record, and most of your fans probably don't either. Just like they don't give a fuck about a new Lesson Jake record. I hate to be like that, but like people, I always give the example of Metallica's last record had some of their best songs ever, in my opinion. There's yeah. one song that stood out the bone that if that was on Master of Puppets, it'd be one of their biggest hits. But that song doesn't have 30 years of memories attached to it. Mm hmm. The memory doesn't remain. There you go. Dump, dump. Yeah. And you can quit your day job because that was really good. You should go on a stand up um, or sit down. You're, you're doing it. Sit down. Yeah, it's perfect. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, you know, that's one of the, the challenges is getting across. No, 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 this is about a song of theirs that one of their biggest songs that has touched people. And it's not an interview. Uh, and again, I don't care about your third drummer who's suing you or this and that or your bass player who cheated on, cheated on you with your wife. This is about the hit in the song. And uh, once I get that across, I've had people come around and go, oh, okay, I get it, you know. <laughs> yeah, you, again, you're creating a community and you're doing it with like-minded people and you're focusing on the people that actually matter instead of trying to win over the unattainable people who never read liner notes. Yeah, well, that and, and um, you know, eventually, I my I kept thinking, you know, I'm using I'm using my initial circle uh, of friends and, and and world that I come from, Punk and Scott, to get artists. But you know, now, now I've been branching out and I'm getting some other folks. So uh, uh, I got some some really good guests coming up that are that are not part of my world at all. That's exciting for me because I don't know them. And I like that aspect of it too, because most of the people I've had on are friends of mine mm -hmm. so far. It's very easy to talk to your friends. It's challenging, you know, and I like a challenge. It's a little more challenging when you don't know someone's personality or what you're going to get on the other line. For sure. And I have to remain stoic and professional in what I do in that setting, you know. And that all harkens back to the Rick Nielsen interview, <laughs> which you handled very well as the straight man, even though he told you he was in the room when you were conceived or your brother was conceived. My brother was, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, and it was ridiculous. But, and it was those kinds of moments where I'm sitting there, I'm like, man, I'm, I'm sitting here in my home studio talking to Rick Nielsen. He's making jokes about my parents fucking, you know, it's like, the hell's going on? <laughs> is, is it cool if I now steer towards the Van Halen, Dave Lee Roth portion of our conversation? You can steer wherever you want. Let's do it. Paltrowcast. Thanks for checking out the Paltrowcast with Darren Paltrowitz. Produced by V13 Media. Theme song by Steve Schiltz. Audio mixing by Mark Pirro. Until next time, have a great Shabbos. Paltrowcast.